Well, good evening and welcome. My name is Mark Riley. This is The Mark Riley Show, heard each and every Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Progressive Radio Network. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. You know, I'm sitting in this studio getting ready to do the show, and I look around, and there are all of these pictures in here. I mean, there's Clark Gable, there's Cary Grant, there's Ingrid Bergman, Betty Davis, Catherine Hepburn, the Marx Brothers, W.C. Field. I mean, just like all of these folks who, by the way, I watch regularly on uh, a certain classic movie network because I love these movies from the 30s and 40s. They're just like, I don't know, there's something about them I really, really, really enjoy. The way they light certain things, the dialogue, it's just like some really wonderful stuff. So I feel really, really comfortable sitting here in this studio, the studios of the Progressive Radio Network. Now, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, <clears throat> let me tell you exactly how the show works. We do 10 stories from this past week, 10 stories I have deemed relatively important. We throw a little analysis into the mix, and then we have a lead story that we do after those stories. And then we open up the phones to you in our listening audience. You can call us at 888-874-4888, 888-874-4888. And then we close the show out with a story that is not sublime, but instead ridiculous. So that's kind of sort of how the show works. And last week when I did this, I realized that, like, the hour literally flew by. And I also realized that I felt, like, free as a bird in here. Free to kind of structure a program in a way that I really haven't been able to do in a while. So I just, like, really enjoyed it. So I'm glad you're along for the ride on this Wednesday evening. First, some folks passed from our midst over the past week. And I think it's important to mark their passing. One, jazz icon Horace Silver, who I think either passed after we went off the air Wednesday or passed early the next day. Horace Silver was an incredible, just produced an incredible body of work. I think most people know Song for My Father, which has been covered by uh, umpteen jazz musicians. So Horace Silver, I believe, was like 85. And then the other day, Eli Wallach passed away. Eli Wallach was 98 years old. This was particularly significant to me because about six, seven years ago, I actually interviewed Eli Wallach when I was working for a radio network and had a chance to sit down and talk with a man who could spin stories better than anybody this side of my late brother Clayton. I mean, he just told stories about being on a set with this one and that one and Clint Eastwood and uh, Francis Ford being directed by Francis Ford Coppola and The Godfather 3, just like all of these different stories. An incredible, again, like Horace Silver, 
an incredible body of work he leaves behind. So Horace Silver and Eli Wallach. We will miss the both of them. So, the news of the week. We start with a settlement in the case of the Central Park Five. We start there because I covered the Central Park Jogger case very closely during the time that it happened, 87, 88, 89. And I remember how this case, this sexual assault and beating of this poor woman, ripped the fabric of this city apart along racial lines. And five young men, ages 14 to 16, were arrested, tried, and convicted in that case. And as it turned out, they were wrongly convicted. And now the city has acknowledged Saint by settling for $40 million. Now, were that to be the end of things, that would be fine. Certainly fine with me. I remember the people who stood up for these young men. One, Sharon Salam, the mother of Yusuf Salam, who maintained her son's innocence all through his case. And by the way, all through his incarceration. Aisha, uh, Aisha Grice, same thing. And people ridiculed them, called them bad parents. And Aisha Grice was not the parent of one of the Central Park Five. But because she stood up for them, they dogged her out, just like they dogged out Sharon Salam. And Donald Trump, buffoon and blowhard that he is. God, I have no use for that man. At the time said they should strap these kids into an electric chair for what they did. And, of course, the ink wasn't dry on the settlement. And Donald Trump, who's still around, comes back and bleats some more. <sighs> Writes a column in the Daily News, which, by the way, they've raised their price from 75 cents to a buck and a quarter. Y'all think that's a bargain? You can call me later on and tell me. But Donald Trump says that this $40 million settlement, I think he called it a disgrace. Said it was wrong. Said these kids did not have sterling pasts. Uh, so what, pal? It's not about their past. Except for the fact that they had a good deal of their past snatched away from them by being imprisoned wrongly. Matthias Reyes was the guy who attacked the jogger. He admitted it. His DNA was found on the woman. But yet there are still people who jump up and say, well, maybe there was somebody else. Never mind that there was no DNA from any of the Central Park Five found on this woman. But they said, well, it, it, it could have been, could have been. More than one person. And when they say that, what they're clearly implying is, well, it must be one of them. One of the Central Park Five. Because the police and the justice system and the prosecutor's office could not have made a mistake this bad. The fact is, they did. And they snatched away 
the prime of life for some young black men. And that will never change. Not now, not ever. I thought, switching gears for a moment, and, and you know, some of the stuff we're going to talk about now is going to be local. Some of it's going to be international. I, I, I just sort of pick stuff, you know. And if there's something you think is just as important as the stuff I'm talking about, please call me at the proper time now at 888-874-4888. I have practiced journalism in this town for 40 years. And periodically, they do what I had come to call a charade, where the Rent Guidelines Board comes together and decides how much more tenants in rent-stabilized apartments in New York City will pay. And, you know, tenants have been screaming about no increase since I started working in journalism and in radio. And I'm not even sure a lot of those tenants back in the day ever thought there'd be a time when no increase, a rent freeze, would be a real possibility. Usually, it would be like 4% on a one-year lease and 8% on a two-year lease or something along those lines. Of course, the landlords wanted 50% on a one-year lease and 99% on a two-year lease because that's what landlords want. Not to knock landlords. You know, I mean, they own the property. Many of them do a great job in keeping up their property. And in some cases, even keeping it affordable for New York City tenants. But the Rent Guidelines Board met the other day. And to my absolute astonishment, voted to allow the lowest percentage rent increase in its entire existence. What's its entire existence? Since 1969. That's when the Rent Guidelines Board started. Now, the mayor, Bill de Blasio, and I credit him for this, wanted no increase, a freeze. He didn't get it. Apparently, one of the people that he appointed to the board who voted not to freeze got so upset he, like, flew out of town the next morning or the same day or something. Must have been a midnight flight to Georgia or something. But 1% on a one-year lease. 2.75% on a two-year lease. Now, that's not perfect. A freeze would have been perfect. Uh, The New York Post, dare I mention the paper, the New York Post, writes a thing about how landlords' costs have gone up. How dare the Rent Guidelines Board play to the special interests that live in rent-stabilized housing? by approving an increase so low. What they didn't say in their editorial, ladies and gentlemen, was that the revenue that landlords have been getting has gone up faster than their costs. You could look it up. I'm not making this stuff up. So the Rent Guidelines Board cut tenants of this town a break. I would have loved to have seen them cut a real break with no increase, a freeze, but 1%, 2.75%, lowest increase ever, 
I'm willing to live with that. Of course, landlords are not happy. Uh, one of them said the difference between zero and 1% is negligible. Real estate taxes went up 2.8%. Who, who's going to hurt is the small property owner who's on the fringe. He's probably right about that, if anybody gets hurt. Now, the smallest increase before now was in 1978. Last year, and by the way, that was a 2% increase. Last year, they approved increases of 4% for one-year leases and 7.75% on two-year leases. That was Mike Bloomberg's <laughs> Rent Guidelines Board. you got to love it. I think it's a wonderful thing. Turning now to international news. Last week, we talked about Iraq, and John Kerry, our Secretary of State, actually went to Iraq. He was not told stuff that I think he necessarily wanted to hear. He visited and talked with a number of folk, including the President, Maliki, and other top Shiite, Sunni, and Kurdish leaders in Baghdad. Now, he talked to the Kurdish president. See, the Kurds have an endgame here. And last week we talked about ISIS's endgame. The Kurds have their own endgame. And it's not the ISIS endgame. The Kurds want their own autonomous state. What John Kerry is trying to sell is a more diverse Iraqi government. That's not what the Kurds want. I'm sorry. That's not what they want. They may actually, you know, give lip service to what Kerry's talking about. But the Kurds want Kurdistan. That's what they want. And Kurdish troops the other day managed to maintain their hold on the city of Kirkuk. Why is that important? Because that's where the oil is. And I told you all last week, I, I think. And we'll continue to think that oil plays a large role in how we conduct ourselves in the Middle East. Not just Iraq, not just Syria, which is not a big oil producer. But it's about the oil, party people. And about our continued slavish dependence on fossil fuels. Now, I could sit here and talk for the next three hours about why alternatives to fossil fuels are better. But as long as we do have this dependence, John Kerry's going to go over there to the Middle East, to Iraq, and meet with Shiites and Sunnis and Kurds and whoever else will talk to him. And he's not going to get a whole heck of a lot done because these folks have their own agenda. The president of the Kurdish region, which is now, by the way, semi-autonomous, because Maliki, Maliki could go into the middle of, of the Kurdish region and say, tomorrow, everybody takes a day off, they'll laugh at him. Because as far as they're concerned, they don't really recognize his authority. So he tells John Kerry, quote, we are facing a new reality and a new Iraq. That's President Massoud Barzani. Now, they want to establish a new situation for themselves. We can argue 
as Westerners, whether or not we think, you know, the Kurdish drive to create their own autonomous state is valid or not. I tend to think it's not up to us. I mean, that's just how I tend to think. But we'll see what happens. I don't know that this violence is going to end because America waves the magic wand. And while we're at it, and while we're talking about this region of the world, there is little more despicable, in my mind, than to see the neocons that got us into Iraq in the first place running around criticizing somebody for what's going on there now. Dick Cheney? Dick freaking Cheney? This chump is on television pontificating about something? You know what I would have loved to see? I know I'd never see it, but I would love to see Dick Cheney sitting in front of a microphone and somebody just takes the microphone away from him so nobody can hear what he says. He's such a low, low human being. All of them. Condoleezza Rice, too. Just so you don't think just because I'm black, I'm cutting her a little slack. I'm not. She was part of that cabal. Paul Wolfowitz and the rest of these clown people. And now they're, oh, Obama, he did the wrong thing. He didn't show strength. Get away from me. Cheney would bomb everybody. <laughs> he really would. He would bomb everybody that doesn't agree with America's, well, not America's, with Dick Cheney's imperialist designs on the world. That's just my feeling about that. So, switching gears... You know, the IRS is still caught up in this foolishness about the Tea Party and where they targeted the Tea Party. And now there's some emails that have gone missing because a computer crashed. And Daryl Issa, the congressman from California, his head is about to explode. He chairs the House Oversight Committee. He calls the commissioner of the IRS, John Koskinen, before the committee. And wants him to own up and, 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 and explain what happened to the emails. And he's lying and he's perjuring himself and blah, 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 blah. This dude just got there. Email's been missing for a while. But he, uh, you know, ISA said that he intentionally misled lawmakers. See, what ISA's doing is trying to find a smoking gun. I'm not sure he's actually going to find one. And this guy... And Lord knows most Americans have no love for the IRS under any circumstances. But the guy kind of sort of said, hey, I didn't hide anything from anybody. And he said, all the emails we have will be provided. I did not say I would provide you emails that disappeared. If you have a magical way for me to do that, I'd be happy to know about it. Chump, that's just my take. He didn't call ISA Chump. Although he could have, and I would have applauded. So they're going to keep trying to dig and dig and dig and hold more hearings, which, by the way, don't put a single American to work. But that's what Congress does. Hearings. Specializes in hearings. It's 20 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock on the great east coast of the United States. This is the Mark Riley Show. Heard under the auspices of 
the Progressive Radio Network. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about the 13th Congressional District race, which the AP called earlier this afternoon, which means it must be true. Right, Jason? The AP said so. But we're going to talk with our good friend, award-winning investigative journalist Wayne Barrett, after a brief musical interlude. back and we're going to talk about the 13th congressional district race charles Rangel, adriano espayat yolanda garcia and the reverend michael walrin the four contestants for that seat and joining us to talk about it is my good friend the award-winning investigative journalist mr wayne barrett wayne how you doing Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for joining us. We yeah. really appreciate it. I don't know how much we can say about Yolanda Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there was some speculation early on that Congressman Rangel had put Yolanda Garcia up to run, and apparently there were a couple of people that had run petitions for her that were at one time connected uh, to the congressman. I don't know. What did you make of her? Well, I thought the New York Times... You know, they described her as a community activist. I'd call her a community inactivist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you're trying to figure out some way to describe her. But, you know, we've had this go on in this town for years and years and years. At least they didn't find a second Adriana Espayat. <laughs> we've seen that happen. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I, I don't have any evidence of it just... About 40 years of experience tells me that it was a plant. And, you know, it didn't work that badly either because she got 1% of the vote, right? So, yeah. you know, it's even a tighter race. It might even make sense if she hadn't been in the race and that 1% went to uh, Espayat for him to be saying what he's saying today, which is essentially that he still won't concede this election, you know, because it would have been a 1,000 votes closer, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Wait, so, mm -hmm. let me ask you this. Uh, there were two polls taken of this race. One yeah. had Wrangle up nine. The second one, the last one that was taken, had him up 13. Yeah. He ended up being up about, what, three, four tops. Now, yeah, I, I think it's you know closer to two, but somewhere two to three, yeah. yeah. Why were the polls so wrong? Well, you know, I... You've been on the air with me on New York One, and I was on New York One last night. Yeah. And you've made the same complaints I've had about. It's so bizarre. It's one of the most bizarre things about our politics in this city is that all of the polls that are done are done by these upstate companies uh, who rely almost entirely on a white student body to do the actual calls. Yeah. You know, Espayot himself said that he was called in 2012 by the pollsters, and he decided to only speak in Spanish. And the other people had no idea. They had no idea what he was saying. They didn't know how to handle him. Well, we've been talking about this forever. Remember yeah. that Freddie Ferrer was supposed to lose by 38 points, remember? I remember. Yes. And, you know, they probably screw up with blacks, too, because it's all white kids calling. But 
you know, with the Latinos, it's a really profound problem. So they, they, these polls are constantly wrong. This was a Siena poll, the second one. And, you know, it, it, it's just, there's a kind of institutional failing here. Why doesn't somebody who wants to make money create, <laughs> I mean, there must be somebody who wants to make money, Mark. Yeah. Why doesn't somebody create a company in New York City? to do polling of New York City, you know, and instead of relying on Quinnipiac and Marist and Siena, and Quinnipiac is off in Connecticut, yeah, you know, yeah. I, it's, it's crazy, it's crazy, and we've had many, many, many completely unreliable results as a result of this, of major city races. Yeah, no, you're right, and I mean, I love Mickey Carroll, he's a great guy. Yeah. Uh, but I guess he's kind of sort of become the spokesperson for Quinnipiac. Other than yeah, yeah, I don't him. think he you know, has much to do with the actual no, poll. He, he doesn't yeah. do the grunt work. But let me ask you this, Wayne, uh, and this comes from some anecdotal tales I've heard, because uh, I know some people who were out stumping for Espayat yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and they were up in Inwood. And what they found, and by the way, these are Spanish speakers right. that were going up there trying to beat the hustings to get people to the polls. And what they found was tremendous amounts of enthusiasm, but far fewer people who could actually go and vote for Espayat. Is that still going to be a problem moving forward, the idea that uh, there are just certain people in the population that uh, while you can say, well, the district is X percent Dominican, a lot of those folks, and, and I'm not trying to use those folks in a pejorative sense, yeah. but a lot of Dominicans simply can't vote. Yeah, well, I think that's a problem. I mean, you got, I think the district... A census now wise population wise is 55 percent yeah latino yeah. and you know in a situation like that espayat should be sweeping to a victory it's you know i mean really yeah. if if he has a base and he has an organization and he, he certainly appears to have both a base and an organization but you know i find him to be a, a really flat almost robotic candidate and i've you know i've spoken to people who've watched him campaign in Spanish because I thought, well, maybe he's more engaging when he's talking in Spanish, but he appears to be the same in Spanish. that he, You never see him smile. You never mm-hmm. see warmth out of the guy. He's, he's a very flat candidate. You know, if you we we were watching that from the headquarters last night when I was on New York One, we were watching Ruben Diaz, for example, come on at the campaign headquarters. And we all said on the air, you know, if this guy were the candidate, he'd win because he has a he, he has a very engaging personality. He's you you can in two minutes get more warmth and engagement <laughs> from Ruben Diaz Jr. I'm talking about the yeah, son, yeah. you know, uh, than than you got from Espayat in the whole campaign, uh, you know. And who can outdo Charlie on that? He's the best retail politician. In the city, I mean, look, look at him now that he's got his health back. Yeah, on yeah. the streets, he's pounding the pavement. He's thirsting for every hand. He's got a quip for this guy and a quip for that guy. I mean, he's a genius at street campaigning. Just and so that's what matters in a race like this when you're going to get true. this kind of turnout. And uh, you know whether or not you hit those streets and look at the energy. He was doing twelve stops a day sometimes. I know. I, I, did Espayat underestimate him that way? You think? You know, I. It's one of those unfortunate things about politics, but I, I think Espayat was thinking. You know, he sees this 
ethnic base, this language base too, and he just thinks he's going to get it, you know. And uh, I don't think, you know, look, I'm not out there every day watching, but I don't think he campaigned with the energy of an 84-year-old man. <laughs> I just don't think he could, you know, put him in a track meet and yeah. Charlie might beat him. <laughs> That's an interesting point. I guess award-winning investigative journalist Mr. Wayne Barrett, my good friend. Wayne, uh, one of the things that comes out of this, and, and you know this because you've po covered politics in this town a long time, uh, Charlie Rangel gets even with those who abandoned him in this race, no? Well, I mean... <laughs> Melissa well, Mark Viverito, Ruben Diaz Jr., even Scott Stringer deserted the ship. Yeah. Who well, else? Uh, the UFT? The I, I don't know whether he's got enough time to get even. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, if it was 10 years ago, I would. I think he'd be sitting there with a score sheet. I think he's just sitting there today saying, thank Alma, we got it. We can, you know, we can keep it for two years. We can leave it a year and a half if I want to hand it off. I think we had that conversation. Yeah. You know, I did it to the last time. I thought he was going to hand it off and not finish out the last term. And he may have reneged on that deal. There may have never been a deal. I don't think there was. To be honest yeah. with you, talking to people uptown, I don't. There were a lot of people who were hoping for yeah. some kind of a deal. Does he? Does he still want to anoint? Given oh, I the last so. two years, the I, last I, two years. Look. This is his legacy, this seat. He thinks it's his to pass on. Now, he's not alone in that. You know, there are a yeah. lot of politicians that when they have a seat for that long, think they get to hand it off to their son or to some other chosen recipient. Look, Basil Patterson just died. David's the governor, you know, the ex-governor. You know, David has come back into prominence by being the chair of the state party. You know, Cuomo turns out to be a Wrangle supporter. Yeah. I can see this going in David's direction much more than Keith Wright's. Really? Yeah, I can see this going with Charlie, you know, uh, you know how close he and Basil were. Yes, very true. And, and, uh, and I can see this going where Charlie decides, now it's going to, you know, everything depends on circumstances, but I can see it going where he would hand this off to David. And, the, you know, in that case, the county committee you know, picks the, the Democratic candidate, and you're running a special, and you're the Democratic nominee. So, you know, I can see that happening. I think it's very important to Charlie that this be, that the, that a black candidate have a real shot. Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, no doubt. But now, Wayne, there's somebody else in the background in all this. What's that? Bill Perkins. Yeah, Bill you Perkins know, he was standing right season. next. He was standing right next to Charlie at the victory party. I know, and he still looks so young, doesn't he? Look fantastic. Yeah, you know, but he's never been part of the in crowd up there. I know they're, they're never going to hand the seat off to him. He may run for it and win it, you know, but he'll have to take on the, whoever the Harlem gang puts up, the remnants of the Harlem gang, because it's not going to be him. He, he's he's a free thinker. He, you know, he's taken them on many times. He called for David to step down before David stepped down. David Patterson, when he was governor, yeah, absolutely. And I just don't see, I don't see Perkins at all being the selection of the Harlem establishment. But I wouldn't be surprised if he ran himself. Of course, you know, Espayat has proven that you can run and hold on to your Senate seat. Mm. So you know, he wouldn't have to give it up to run if he plays the Espayat game, and if the if the primaries still are in June and September for the two different offices. 
So uh, that's another reason for him to give it a shot if it's just an ordinary primary in two years. But he looks terrific. He certainly looks like he's young enough to run. He's got a, a, a great head. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was really surprised at how close he was to Charlie last night up there on the platform most of the night. Well, yeah, yeah I, I kind of thought that was not for nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think you're right. Because, you know, Charles Rangel is very aware of who's standing around him. Yeah, he's aware of who's with him, too. Yeah, he you is. Know, so he must have felt like Perkins really helped him. You know, and they did so well with the Harlem vote this time. They really did well. They turned it out, yeah. yeah they they yeah. absolutely did. Yeah, yeah. Somebody did some real numbers crunching in there. And, and by the way, he didn't do that badly with whites in the district either, it appears. Well, yeah, that's what I heard. I <laughs> I haven't seen all of the numbers yet, but I heard that, that he, he got over 50 percent is what I heard. He got over 50 percent of the white vote. Yeah. 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 And, and that's an important vote in, in that district because it's changed. Absolutely. It has absolutely. absolutely changed so much. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. Assuming that Espayat is done running. No, I don't think you can assume that, Mark. Really? Because well, I'm thinking, know, like, uh, is there somebody else in the Dominican community who's well, now going to jump wouldn't up that and say, be, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a good idea? You know, but <laughs> I think that, um, you know, when there is, let's let's just assume it's a regular election two years from now and that there is no incumbent running that Charlie has served out his term. Mm-hmm. And um, on that assumption... I think it'll be a multiple candidate race with white candidates in it, mm-hmm. uh, with probably more than one Latino candidate in it, and perhaps with Bill Perkins and David Patterson in it. You know, uh, David Patterson, for example, has a very strong white base. Remember, he was a state senator up that way. Yeah. He has a very strong white base up there. So <clears throat> let's assume that that happens. Well, then Espayat looks at this as an opportunity because... If he simply can turn out anything resembling the vote that he got in both of these runs against Rangel, and it's a multi-candidate race, then he has a chance of coming out yeah. ahead of them. There's no runoff or anything like that. He just has to he just has to win a primary in a multiple candidate race. I think it's very likely he goes a third time. Now I got to tell you, Wayne, if there is a multi-candidate race, and, and I think you're absolutely right, that's going to be what happens in 2016. Yeah. There's somebody whose name has not been talked about much in the last two races, but who could play a crucial role in 2016. What's that? Jerry Nadler. Jerry Nadler is quietly the most powerful member of the New York congressional delegation. And if there's a wide open, he might, you know, he might have held his held his fire this time around. It's Charlie. Well, if, if Scott Stringer is with us by out, then so is Jerry. He just didn't endorse. Yeah, he didn't endorse. Yeah. But might he be a kingmaker on the order of Charles Rangel uh, in 2016 if there's a candidate that he really likes? Well, we only have room in this town for one kingmaker. <laughs> The Rev. The Rev is the kingmaker who who manages now. You know, he plays this game. He didn't even endorse anybody in the mayoral election. His game now is to be neutral, and somehow the neutrality will be interpreted as he's a kingmaker. You know? Yeah, I, mean, I know. Yeah, I know. It's... I think he's neutral on all police brutality cases now, too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you're killing me. You're killing me. That's my man, but you're killing me. <laughs> but no, I, I don't see... 
Nadler is, you know, he, I'm sure he can have an effect. But look, Stringer is Nadler's guy, and he goes I out know. for Espyat, and that didn't help much. No, I mean, you're right. You're right that Nadler has more of an edge than Stringer does, probably, even though Stringer now is the controller of the city of New York. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, this guy, Clive Williams, I don't know much about him. But he got over 4,000 votes the last time. Yeah. And then he wound up making it very clear on Election Day that he'd just gone and voted for Charlie. So it sounds like he might want to get back into the game. You know, I think there could be multiple black candidates in that. Oh, I, I, I fully expect there to be. I, yeah. I would be. I would want a ringside seat just in case Keith Wright and Bill Perkins both decided to contest. Yeah. I, now, I don't think... Keith Wright and David Patterson would run against each other. They're old friends. Yeah. But I, uh, uh, I, I agree with you there. But you just look at, I mean, if you just look at it in purely political terms, Keith Wright represents such a small sliver yeah. of that congressional district. David Patterson was the governor, right? <laughs> yeah. The name recognition difference in that congressional district between the two is night and day. And David Patterson is so much stronger of a candidate in a big congressional district than Keith is that uh, I don't think Keith is dumb. You know, I think Keith probably sees his future uh, as a potential speaker mm -hmm. or or uh, at least a majority leader in the assembly. At some point, Shelley Silver has to wrap it up. And, uh, <laughs> and, Are and, you sure about that? <laughs> you know... At some point, it's going to happen. And I just think, you know, if Keith Wright looks at what are my prospects for winning in a big congressional district like that when I've just been representing, I mean, he's not well-known at all. I mean, we know he's the Manhattan County leader. We, You know, we know all of that. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I don't think he's a formidable candidate in a congressional district race. I'm not sure he is. Whereas I do think he's a very formidable person in the leadership structure of the state assembly and could go all the way to the top. Yeah. We've Wait, never had a black speaker in this that's, state. That's absolutely true. One final quick question. Uh, there's been some talk that uh, the split primary this time around is a waste of time, effort, and money, and that they should either agree on June, agree on September, agree on something, but don't split the congressional and the state races like they have this mm -hmm. year. What do you think? Yeah, I, 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 it makes all the sense in the world. The situation as we have it now makes no sense. It makes no sense from a legal standpoint, which is why we're in this condition, because we had this court finding mm -hmm. uh, that forced us to have a June primary to accommodate absentee ballots from people in the armed services, most technical ruling possible, but we're apparently unconcerned about uh, accommodating uh, absentee ballots uh, in the, for the state legislature, which still <laughs> runs in September. You know, yeah. they're only allowed to vote for the people who could put them at war, but never do. They just let the president do it. Right? <laughs> You're rough, Wayne. You're rough. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, that's it. Makes no sense financially because you got to pay for two primaries. It costs a freaking fortune. I know. And I and know. Uh, so uh, it, it's something's got to be done about it. But I think the main roadblock, and and maybe this roadblock won't exist after November, is the Republicans in the Senate. Yeah. They they do not want 
their primary date moved up for whatever political calculation they have made. I think the assembly would be willing to go along with it with a June primary. Yeah, the I indications so. are that the blockage has been with the Senate with the Republican. Senate. With Skellos. Yeah. With Dan yeah. Skellos, for sure. Wayne, we got to leave it there, man, but thank you so much Great for joining us. Great talking to you, man, and I, I, I'm sorry about my Rev comments. <laughs> Don't worry about all it, right, man. man. It's all good. You okay. take care. Have a good one. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wayne Barrett, award-winning investigative journalist, used to write for The Village Voice. Just an incredible, one of the people that I feel made journalism during the course of my lifetime. And we're so glad he was here with us on the Progressive Radio Network. Our number is 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. We're going to open our phones to you. If there's something's on your mind that I haven't talked about, say, hey, you didn't talk about this. Please share. Give me a call. 888-874-8888. Uh, should we take another musical interlude or? Oh, there is somebody on the line. My good friend, Michael S.W. from the Bronx. How you doing, buddy? Surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> How you been? I, I was about to ask you that, man. I miss you. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you miss me. I'm back. I'm doing this once a week and uh-huh. I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. I'm so glad for you, man. You know, a bunch of us, you know, have missed you. And, um, Thanks to a certain friend whom you and I know, um, you know, she had informed me and reminded me about you being on the show this evening. And I said to her, "I, I want to give him a call and really surprise him." <laughs> well, you did that, and I'm glad you called, man. What's on your mind this evening? Well, it's an interesting interview you had with Wayne Barrett. I think I met him one time at one of those um, progressive town hall meetings. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which one, but you know, very great guy. And the um, the funny thing about the um, Durango and Espaillat, I always have problems pronouncing his last name. Sorry. Um, The thing is is that Espaillat, if I recall correctly, he was campaigning mainly towards um, Latinos, and he was playing loud music on a certain block that was um, disturbing to the merchants. And... You know, funny thing is, my coworker and I, we were discussing that, and from what it sounds like, it didn't sound much like a campaign, but more like a block party, and people couldn't tell it was a campaign. So, well, you know, Michael, part- uh, there's a long history of uh, political candidates driving through communities on flatbed trucks, uh, or in, in some cases on station wagons with big speakers on the top. That's not new. Espaillat didn't invent that. Now, if... You know, you get in the middle of the block and you just sit there and you're blaring the music and suddenly the business people get upset. That's a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of the problem that Espayat had was there was a, a definite enthusiasm in the Dominican community. First of all, the Dominican community is not the totality of the Latino community in, New York, in, in that district, number That's one. one thing. Number two... You have to talk about the question. And by the way, this is an issue in the Caribbean community, the English-speaking Caribbean community, where you have large numbers of people, but since they're not citizens, they cannot vote. I can tell you another problem, though, and that is that if he's going to just campaign and cater towards a certain group of people, and you haven't looked at the dynamics or the population of the district whose election you're trying to win, 
You know, what is that saying about everyone else in that district? Are you going to neglect them? And that's what I think, or what I heard, a lot it's a problem a lot of people have. You got to reach out to everybody that you're hoping to win votes. Well, that's you know, the whole thing, Michael, and I want to thank you so much for the phone call. Yes, uh, indeed, buddy. Have a good one. I, it, it is about reaching out across ethnic, racial, political lines and engaging people within a district. Connie from Jackson Heights in Queens is next in the queue. Connie, how you doing? Okay, Mark, and I'm really happy to finally talk to you, and I'm glad that at least you're on some time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And um, I wanted to uh, say that I'm glad that you're back to uh, some extent. I wish you were on every day, and I miss you in the morning very much. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. What do you? What's on your mind? What well, I wanted to, uh, you know, you brought up Donald Trump. Oh, God. Yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and I want to tell you about a sweetheart deal that he has. He's building this stupid golf course up in the Bronx. Yeah, I heard getting, about that. And he's getting free water. Free water? Yeah, all the water that they are going to use on that golf course is going to be free. Mr. Self-Made Man can't pay for his own water? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's the deal that he got. Let me ask you a question, Connie. Yeah. Why, why do you think it is that every time Donald Trump opens his mouth, people still pay attention? It, it's a mystery to me. All I can think of is that he's got, he's, um, maybe he sports people with money. Maybe uh, they, they don't like to, um, maybe it's just the money itself, you know? It might be. It might be. Whatever it is. I wish he'd go somewhere and just shut up. You yeah, I, mean? I, I have like, a lot of people like that out there I'd like to see shut up. <laughs> absolutely. Connie, thank you so much for the kind words. We really appreciate the call. Okay, dear. You take, take care. care. Have a good night. 888-874-4888 is our number. Got a couple other stories I didn't get to before. Uh, the president of Egypt has said, and I got to say, when they start locking journalists up, I don't care where it is, I get nervous. They have decided in Egypt to lock up three journalists from Al Jazeera's English language service. They've each been sentenced to at least seven years in an Egyptian prison. Journalists from all over the world are upset about this, and rightly so. I don't know whether they were spies. I don't know whether they did what they were accused of, of doing. But secrecy, when it comes to this sort of thing, isn't cool. Now, the leader, the president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, essentially said, look, we don't get involved. We don't intervene in the work of our judiciary. We will not interfere in judicial rulings. That's how he put it. Okay, fine. Don't interfere. But if the United States start cutting, starts cutting its aid, which it, by the way, has not yet said it would do. But if the United States said, you know what, uh, how much are we giving you? Three, four, five billion dollars? Well, you know what, we're going to cut it down to about uh, 100 million. No more planes, no more equipment, no more training for your military. Maybe the president of Egypt might rethink this decision. Or at least, if he's not going to rethink it, say to his judiciary, you know what, you better explain what happened here. I mean, at least in this country, 
and, and we're no paradigm, but at least in this country, if you're accused of a crime in most cases, not all, but in most cases, you have an opportunity to be tried in open court where people can sit in the back of the room and hear what's going on. In this case, nobody knows what went on. Nobody knows what the evidence was. Nothing. That, to me, is wrong. Whether, by the way, it's journalists from Al Jazeera or some people on the street near Tahrir Square. It's wrong. Simple as that. Uh, They had a meeting last weekend of America's mayors. No, not Rudy Giuliani, who was at one point considered America. No, not one guy or one woman, a group of American mayors. And they're talking about raising the minimum wage. They're talking about how to lift people who are the lowest paid workers in this country, in their cities and in their towns. About time, I must say. And to the extent Bill de Blasio has been in the forefront of this, Nice work, Mr. Mayor. But you see, when you start talking about increasing the minimum wage, just like when you talk about keeping rent increases low, there are forces out here who will jump up and start screaming, what do you mean raise the minimum wage to 10 bucks an hour? Why? People are going to get laid off. It's going to stunt economic development. What's wrong with you? Well, Can you present to us some evidence in this regard? Never mind that. I know what's going to happen. Just like Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney said there's going to be a nuclear bomb detonated in the United States sometime soon. I don't know whether he looked into a crystal ball. Hey, Jason, have have you ever thought that Dick Cheney maybe practices the black arts? (laughs) He's doing something. Look at it. I think we're going to be nuked in this country sometimes. I don't know what that means, except to, like, bomb everybody. Yeah, I know. He's trying to scare people. Why? I don't know. Maybe he's going to run for president. I I have no idea. All I know is that it's not a great leap of faith to go from Dick Cheney to people, many of them in the business community, but not all, who say that raising the minimum wage and at least putting a little bit more money in the hands of the poorest workers in America is somehow going to destroy the country. We'll go into a recession, for God's sake. What do you expect people to do? They've kind of given up the argument, by the way, that, you know, these people all work part-time and they're just college kids and nobody expects them to feed their families like this. They know that's not true. Because some of them have put out memos and handbooks and whatever about how to access food stamps and how to access other government programs that they are eligible to access because they don't make any money. <laughs> you know, I, I, so I, I'm glad to hear that mayors and cities across our great land are now looking at ways to raise the wages of those people who make so little in this society. Close to home, the NYPD. (laughs) You know, the New York City Police Department sometimes has, uh, how best to put this, Jason? Stones. (laughs) Okay. Brass ones, if you know what I mean. 
They're asking the Muslim community here in New York to help them with counterterror surveillance. You can spell counterterror surveillance S-P-Y on fellow Muslims. Okay. Now that they've got rid of the spying unit that was actually a part of the NYPD, they go to Muslims and say, hey, help us out over here. You know, spy on people. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Now, I don't think Bill Bratton is the worst person in the universe. You know, I mean, I look back across the pantheon of New York City police commissioners going back to the late 60s. He's not the worst. But in order to get Muslims to cooperate with you, you have to come to the table with a modicum of respect. Respect, ladies and gentlemen. You have to be able to say, okay, let us sit down, break bread together. We're not going to agree about everything, but we do need your help in keeping us all safe. So if you hear of something, we would appreciate a heads up. But you got to come with respect. Respect. Too much to ask? I don't think so. Now, last week we talked about the World Cup. We talked about the protests surrounding the World Cup. Tonight, I'm just going to talk very briefly about the fact that I, a lapsed soccer player in high school, think this World Cup is wonderful. It is amazing. I was out in Brooklyn the other day, the end of last week, and saw people walking the streets, Smith Street, Court Street, downtown Brooklyn, with a gorgeous mosaic of national team jerseys, not just the American jersey, the Italian jersey, the Colombian jersey. You go to certain parts of Jersey, everybody's wearing a yellow Colombian jersey. I wonder if this might not be the time that soccer turns an important corner in this country. The match between the United States and Portugal drew 25 million people. It outdrew baseball. The ESPN audience for that game, 18.2 million viewers, set a record for a soccer game on American television. The previous record was for the 1999 Women's World Cup Final. Univision aired the game in Spanish, 6.5 million viewers. Half million people streamed the game. Now, it's not the Super Bowl or anything, but that game eclipsed the NBA Finals, which averaged 15.5 million viewers. Maybe, just maybe, we're turning a corner with not just the coverage. And, and by the way, I got some problems with some of the coverage, but for another time. Let's just say Alexi Lalas is not my favorite commentary uh, commentator this week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he's become the football pope. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes, I believe. Yeah, okay, fine. Whatever. Sit down. U.S. is playing Germany tomorrow. I hope everybody, everybody watches. Uh, some trouble across the river for Governor What's for Dinner. That would be Chris Christie. Sorry, I don't want to talk bad about his weight. Apparently he lost a couple of pounds or so. I don't know. But uh, 
investigators are looking at possible security law violations. Not from the Bridgegate thing, not the George Washington Bridge, but from a $1.8 billion road repair agreement that was forged between the governor and the Port Authority in 2011. This might be around the time that Christie decided he wasn't going to sign off on a train tunnel between Jersey and Manhattan. Now, this was a period, the security law, securities law violation is focusing on a period of 2010 to 2011 when the Christie administration tried to get the Port Authority to pay for extensive repairs to the Pulaski Skyway. Y'all ever ridden on the Pulaski Skyway? <laughs> Believe me, it's a really strange experience. Uh, and by the way, other road projects. Now, that money was supposed to be used for the tunnel. But, of course, Christie canceled. I, I thought that cancellation stunk back when he did it four years ago. Now I'm starting to be absolutely certain that it really, really did stink. Uh, I didn't get to the ridiculous part, Jason. The ridiculous part. A guy from Ohio who gets busted flying a kite naked near a kid's camp. And then when he gets busted, says, well, I was I was only trying to relieve myself. Relieve yourself of what? <laughs> what? See, there's ridiculous stuff goes on in this country all the time. He got busted, though, this guy. Uh, he's 82 years old. You'd have thought he had some could have figured out something else to do. Right. Edward Paolucci. Uh, he said it was a misunderstanding. Uh, naked kite. Even if he was doing a whiz, it's still, it's like, yo, uh, how about you, like, find a bathroom somewhere? And how about you put on a pair of skivvies or something? You know, it's all ridiculous. But I must say, it has not been ridiculous to host this past hour. I have had a ball. I feel so free. I may fly out of here like a pigeon. <laughs> okay. My thanks to Jason, who's on the board. Thanks to Casey. Thanks to all the crew here at the Progressive Radio Network. My thanks to Gary Null. And uh, by the way, if you get a chance, there's all these gorgeous pictures here. Put up a picture of Nina Mae McKinney. If you all don't know who that is, look it up. Because she's one of the most beautiful women of that same era with the uh, Hepburns and Bergmans and all Betty Davis and all the rest of them. So maybe we'll get that up one day. I'm out of here. Thanks so much for listening. Back next week, 6 p.m., God willing. And the creek don't rise.